Is this all funny? Yeah, it absolutely is. I cackled out loud throughout the 38-minute episode, but it feels atypically aggressive, strangely paced, and in some cases, destructively impatient. <laughs> what a review from Gregory Lawrence of Collider on the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, season 10. We are now six episodes in, so I'll review that. Big news, my man, RT, Randall Thorne, in the house. His new show is called Utopia Falls. He is the creator and director of the show. Also stars one of my guys, Husman Haji. Of course, a former guest here on Cinephile. And Utopia Falls is currently available on Hulu. So I'm going to talk to Randall about the show and uh, how it all came to be. And it's uh, excellent. Honestly, if uh, you have a teenager in the house or if you love science fiction, it's like a, it's the first ever sci-fi hip-hop opera, as it were. So I'm going to talk to him about that. We also have our Mount Rushmore comedy series in honor of talking about Curb, which is another impossible list. A great topic from Joe last week in terms of Mount Rushmore of HBO shows. Got a lot of good feedback to that. And for the Oscars revisitation, what year are we doing, Joe? 1992, I believe? Oscars 1993, films from 1992. All right, so we'll look forward to that, and it uh, should be a good list of movies here as we look forward to that. Let's kick it off, though, by talking about Curb. Oh, as always, by the way, of course, give us some love on Apple Podcasts. Please do uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Leave a comment, and that goes a long way, uh, my understanding, is towards helping us out here. Let's talk about Curb, though, because it's um, certainly a show that generates a lot of reaction. And I thought... I've always been a fan of the show. I first remember t- hearing about Kirby Enthusiasm. I was working at TSN, the sports network, as an EA. Shout out to Alpha Hill One, who's listening. And Mike Mastarshan, an assignment I used to work with, was talking about this show. And he goes, oh, it's from the creator Seinfeld. I'm like, oh, okay, it's, it's from Seinfeld. And it's like, yeah, no, no, it's from the creator. It's not Seinfeld. It's this guy named Larry David. I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, I was always, I was 19, 20 at the time. I was always aware of behind-the-scenes people. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard of this guy. You know, that uh, George Costanza was based on him. He's the co-creator, the writer, but never actually seen the guy. Right? Like, who's, who's, who knows Larry David? It's amazing now how, like, he is his own brand. He has his own persona. Like, everyone knows who Larry David is and what you're getting with Larry David, which is a particularly cranky person, you know, bitter, sarcastic, hates people, misanthropic, very Jewish, uh, you know, New Yorker living in LA, like you just focusing on the minutia of life. And so it, it, it was built in many ways as a, as a show for Seinfeld fans. And it is that, but it's much different, I think, in many ways in tone, because it's a lot more acerbic and sharper. And it's not just the fact that you can curse and it is aggressive with the profanity. I mean, one of the first episodes I remember Marzi's talked about is when, you know, this it's supposed to say beloved aunt in the open. It says beloved cunt. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, well, this is this kind of show. And obviously Richard Lewis, one of my favorite standups of all time. He's incredible on the show. J.B. Smoove became a real breakout star playing Leon. Like that was a few seasons in. And once Leon came, he just completely changed the dynamic of the show. Um, you know, being this very, very funny character and just the idea of, you know, this very Jewish New York guy with this, you know, loud black guy who's his house guest. And then you bring in the blacks, of course, uh, Vivek a Fox and Company, Susie Essman, who is always very profane, Cheryl Hines playing the mild-mannered wife. And, I, and the guy I love, of course, is Jeff Garland, who I always think the best friend roles are so important in these type of shows. And I think Jeff plays it so well. Also a former guest on Cinephile and a great guy. So Curb, you know, it starts out, okay, it's for Seinfeld fans, and then people are aware of it, and then it becomes more than just a cult. It becomes a genuine hit. I know that they won a couple of Emmys. I remember when Larry David won a Golden Globe. I remember his speech was so vivid. He goes, what a terrible night for the Globes, but a wonderful night for Larry David, uh, and always a self-deprecating guy. Having said all of that, I did think that it was starting to lose a little bit of steam, and there was a reason that, you know, the show hadn't been on for a while. I, got, I thought... The Michael J. Fox season, and once, you know, he goes to Paris, I'm like, okay, we're good here. Like, you know, seven seasons, whatever it was, eight seasons. 
And then he comes back after a long absence last year. And I didn't think last season was as strong as it's been in the past. And that's often symptomatic of shows, which have been going A for a long time and B, have been absent for a while. Like it's just tough to reclaim your fastball. And I just thought the whole idea of the Fatwa, like it was just an outdated joke. I mean, Excel and Rusty jokes are like 1987. Like, why is he going with this whole bit? And that's like the through line. Um, you know, one year, of course, Larry was in the producers. That was the main plot line. You know, last year was the fatwa. This year, it's about him owning a spite restaurant because he's trying to spite this uh, Mocha Joe's, who's the coffee guy there as well. So the first episode was tremendous from this year. And particularly, laugh out loud moment, Jeff Garland being confused for Harvey Weinstein. Guilty, by the way. Good to see that. Um, and the show has certainly had some memorable moments. There's one great bit. But what I've noticed with this season, and again, this is where it does dovetail the Seinfeld. I think the shows at times, you know, Seinfeld and company felt very sitcom-y and kind of silly and goofy. And uh, they played off of that because I think Jerry and, and Larry really love, you know, Benny Hill and those old shows. And they would kind of tap into that. So I thought at least initially Curb was different than that. It was harsher. But now it's become a little more silly and goofy. And, you know, the music's always been great because it's, as he said, a, a music that always puts you in a good mood. But there's been some moments now. I mean, there's one episode where they're being attacked by these guys, you know, those jumping close-ups of the man, like yelling in their faces, and Larry's doing the, oh, no, no, like even Jeff are freaking out. And so it's felt to me a little slapsticky at times. And I think that's always been kind of in the DNA of Curb again. I don't think it's ever was like a straight comedy. I don't think it was like a pure sitcom, but it's gotten a little more, uh, like I said, a little more slapstick at times, a little goofy, but ultimately it's still a funny show. And I think this season's been a good bounce back as opposed to season nine. Having said that, this past episode was howlingly unfunny. Like the, the, the curve will always give you one or two clunkers. And there was literally one joke that made me laugh out loud. And even that's an easy joke as I say it. A German shepherd named Adolf. And when Larry says, Heil Hitler, the dog goes down. I mean, like that's, as I say that, I'm like, yeah, as if no one's ever done that before. I swear, even when I saw it, I go, I think he's done this before. I think there's been a joke about a German shepherd and like how he ra he's racist. But regardless... He's an incredibly funny guy. He's obviously a brand unto himself. Even with a clunker once in a while, it's still a funny show. They've had obviously great guest stars as always. Chris Martin was the most recent episode. Vince Vaughn, I mean, of course, you miss Funkhauser. So uh, Vince Vaughn carrying on the legend, playing a Funkhauser, not playing himself. Uh, so that's been good to see as well. And Clive Owen was really funny in terms of guest stars in this year, puncturing the way the actors view themselves and the vanity of all of it. So all of which is to say, I'll give it three Maple Leafs. It's good to have Curb back. I don't think it's as funny as it once was, but once you're into season 10, it's hard to do so. Joe, your thoughts on Curb? I liked it. I watched the pilot last night, and you're right. There's just some hysterical laugh-out-loud moments, but I think there's a testament to a show that can do it after so many years and still strike the same tone and be funny. Yeah, and I think, you know, whatever criticisms of the show may be leveled, I think it's part and parcel of who Larry David is. You know what I mean? Like, I think even he himself is like, listen, I didn't expect to be a guy who would have hundreds of millions of dollars. And that really hasn't changed his temperament. He's still a guy who's easily annoyed. And of course, the question always becomes, what's he like in real life? You know, what's Larry like here? What's he like in real life? And he always says that he is on the show. That's an exaggerated persona of himself. He does not go around getting into arguments and fighting with people over the... Uh, mildest inconveniences but he thinks about it so on the show he gets to actually react to things the way he'd like to uh but that you know kind of crankiness is always kind of a part of who he is richard roper chicago sun times says in the kickoff episode of the new season of curb larry stars in a kind of greatest hits tribute to the show as he offers a medley of offensive opinions in rapid fire fashion that is curb your enthusiasm four more episodes still to go some entertainment news for you welcome in rt Martin Scorsese eagerly awaiting another Oscars battle with Bong Joon-ho. Bong Joon-ho saying that uh, of all the 
you know, moments that he's been really celebrating here. He said he got a poignant letter from Scorsese that reflected on their recent time together on the award circuit, saying, quote, I just read this letter a few hours ago. It was an honor. I can't tell you what the letter said because it's something personal. He said, I did a good job and should rest, but only a little because he and everyone else was eagerly waiting for my next film. And he's currently working to bring Parasite to HBO as a limited series, which will be interesting. He said he thought he had more meat on the bone. He could make a six hours rather than just a two-hour movie. And Marty is reteaming with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, his two greatest actors. Adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon, a 1920s-set Western about the Osage Nation murders. So I don't know if I'm going to read the book. I did that with Shutter Island, which, of course, ruined the book, ruined the movie for me. But I may have to read the book. Um, first ever Western for Marty, who, a guy who loves Westerns. The Searchers is one of his favorite movies. He's talked about it many times. Taxi Driver, in many ways, uh, is an homage to it. So good to have Bong Joon-ho making a, a mini-series here at Parasite. You up for that, Joe? I'm up for it. I'm in. I'll be there. Just let me know when. I'll set my alarm. I'm in. <laughs> I agree. I mean, the show is so good. I can't imagine how much better uh, a mini-series. We have more time to get into it. Next week, we're going to review Hunter's which I'm three episodes into. Amazon Prime's new series has come under fire from the Auschwitz Memorial for being historically inaccurate, particularly by creating macabre games that take place in concentration camps. The show's creator, David Wilde, responded to the criticism, saying that symbolic representations provide individuals access to an emotional and symbolic reality that allows us to better understand the experiences of the Shoah. He pushed back against the idea that stories about the Holocaust should never be fictionalized, saying it's not a documentary, it was never purported to be. But the Memorial's Twitter account called a violent scene featuring a human chess game, dangerous foolishness, and a caricature. In the scene, which is depicted in the opening credits of all 10 episodes and plays out in the first episode, a Jewish chess master is held captive and forced to play a game of chess where the pieces are represented by fellow prisoners. It's definitely a controversial show. I will save my review for next week, but uh, clearly people at least in this instance, are upset. Auschwitz was full of horrible pain and suffering documented in the accounts of survivors. Inventing a fake game of human chess for hunters is not only dangerous foolishness, it also welcomes future deniers. Tough talk there. Definitely. But was the show ever marketed or purported to be historically accurate? I thought they were kind no. of just playing over the times. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's part of the issue with the show is it's kind of dealing with, you know, realism at the same time it is kind of campy. But... Um, yeah, and like you said, it's not meant to be a documentary, so it's always duff, but I can see people being uh, you know, sensitive to it. One more piece of entertainment news, a Friends reunion. That's right, months after the 25th anniversary of the launch of Friends, the cast is reuniting exclusively for an untitled, unscripted special for HBO Max. Stars Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Matt LeBlanc, Matthew Perry, David Schwimmer will return to the iconic comedy's original soundstage to film the reunion special. So this is clear here. This is not a new episode. It's a special. So they're all going to be together all 236 episodes of the Emmy-winning show available to subscribers the launch of HBO Max in May. According to sources, each of the six stars will be paid in the $3 million to $4 million range for the reunion. Think about that, Joe. Can you just come on and hang out? We'll tell stories again. We'll give you $3 million. You in? I'm in. Tell me where to sign. For a one-hour special, Tell I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> Write me in. What a life, man. Right. I wax poetic and be nostalgic. I've never seen Friends. You? You know, I did, and I liked it as a kid, but now as an adult in my 20s in New York City, I hate the show so much. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I, I had zero attraction to it. I just, it's a bunch of white yuppies running around, and it looks silly and goofy, and just not my thing. I, obviously, a gigantic success, and congrats to the Friends reunion, but me and Joe are out. Now it's time <laughs> for our special guest.
this is always a challenge when you're welcoming a guest. I don't, I don't know if I should do this seriously as if I'm like, you know, professional journalist or I'm just bringing in one of my boys, RT. So it'll be probably a mix of both. So I'm going to read his bio as if he's unknown to me and then I will have lots of inside jokes for he and I both to laugh at. Visionary writer-director R.T. Thorne has emerged as one of Canada's most electric storytellers since debuting on the music video filmmaking scene over a decade ago. Known for his reputation of developing bold but emotionally driven visuals, R.T. began crafting his own narratives in 2016, writing, directing, and co-producing the short The Time Traveler, which won Best Short Film Canadian Film Festival that year. Four years later, his first television series, Utopia Falls, an original science fiction series, is now on Hulu, he is the series creator, executive producer, director, co-writer, and most importantly, my good friend, R. Tizzle. Welcome to Cinephile. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I just love that we're doing uh, this. I'm just, I know, man. I, I, it's funny. It's funny because, like, you have you your 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 podcast. You have like some of the greatest intros, dude. You 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 run down the guest. You you have like some of the most elaborate, amazing. Um, intros for people and I just wanted to hear you read <laughs> I just wanted to hear you read something about me it was great bro thank you oh, I have more I'll do a little more of it in addition to his own narrative projects oh, RT not, has you directed have to go, you have to go on you have to go on <laughs> okay. I'll, let me do one more. In addition to his own narrative projects, RT has directed television for NBC Universal, Netflix, Disney, Hulu, and Bell Media. His international episodic television work has taken him to three continents, earning him two Canadian Screen Award nominations and a Directors Guild of Canada nomination. Now we're ready to roll. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Let's talk about Utopia Falls, man. It's awesome. Debuted here in the States. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's available on Hulu. Um, it, it is, as I described, the first ever show of its kind. I mean, you've seen science fiction shows before. You've seen hip-hop shown in, in television and movies, but never before combined the two. Obviously, I know what a creative person you are. I remember back when we were in school at Ryerson, you'd be looking at, like, you know, art books and stuff. And you'd be like, oh, I just get, you know, ideas from it. And just, you know, shot composition and looks and stuff. So I, I want to start there. Just where do you get the idea for something which hasn't been done before? Obviously, we love movies. We love other people. But you have to have some inspiration coming from other sources. So for you, how did you craft this entire world, which was amazing to see? Um, well, I appreciate that. And, and uh, you know, look, man, honestly, it was it was one of those things where, um, I was, uh, I, I met with the, the production company, Sonar Entertainment, and they were interested in doing something in sort of the youth space. You know, they wanted to engage the youth space, um, and they were looking for something fresh. And, uh, you know, they, they asked me, what did I, you know, obviously I come from a music video background. I have, a, you know, over a decade of experience working in that world, and so they were just like, you know, what would be an interesting, um, you know, take on, on, on a project for, for, uh, you know, teenagers. And, you know, I just said, look, I, I, uh, I've just never seen, um, the culture that I grew up with, um, projected into the future, you know, which is hip hop. And, and, um, it's, it's just, I've, I've never seen the two things combined, number one, but I've also just, you know, personally, I just don't see, um, you know, we know, we all know, know about the birth of hip hop, uh, in the seventies, we live in a hip hop era now where hip hop is like probably the preeminent, um, uh, pop culture force in the world. It's all over the world. It dominates, um, uh, music charts. Um, but we never understand, 
uh, or have seen it in the future. And, um, and it, you know, actually, in general, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi kid as well as being a hip-hop kid. And, you know, in a lot of science fiction uh, films and television series, they, they sort of present these large ideas, which is amazing. Um, uh, and you kind of understand the politics of that kind of a world. But you rarely see the culture of that world. You rarely ever see what people are listening to, what kind of music. For some reason, music in the future is just sort of EDM electronic music. <laughs> like, it's like, the, it's like, or it's classical, right? Or it's just classical music, right? So it's like, what are they listening to in that world? I mean, we all know that music moves people. Um, culture moves people. Um, it, it creates change within people in the populace. Um, politically, socially. So why haven't we seen uh, a future where, where we actually get to taste and feel the culture of that world? And so that's where it came from, is, is sort of projecting hip-hop into that and seeing what it would, what it would happen. Yeah, it's funny because you're right. Sometimes hip hop can be used as a soundtrack for the film. But I found when watching Utopia Fools, it's the soul of the film. You know what I mean? It's it's the soul of the thing because mm -hmm. it's like it, it imbues everything. It's almost like your artistic choices. It's not like you're. It's not like a music video. Like you said, your background. It's not like you're cutting it to a video. But there are moments, certainly mm -hmm. in the dance sequences or montages and such, and it has the rhythm of music, a rhythm of hip hop, which can be anti-authoritarian, which is you know speaking for something, speaking your mind having messages that can be cloaked in music. And just because you want to bob your head to it, you're still saying something very important, which, as you know, I'm not a huge hip-hop guy, but I adore Public Enemy. I met Chuck D a few months ago. I almost lost my mind. And when I texted you, I'm like, dude, I met Chuck Lovely. D. I'm like, please tell me Public Enemy is in the show. You're like, well, you know, licensing, et cetera. But when you think about the origins of hip-hop, what was it? It was a movement. It was a revolution. It was saying things and speaking up for a group of people. So it's interesting that you transfer that to a science fiction world. And again, it's a group of people, a group of dissidents, uh, or dissonance, whatever you want to say, who are rising up mm -hmm. and they're using music with which to do so, which is interesting. It's like it's like you took the parallels of what hip hop actually is and you made it into a fictional show, but it actually is what hip hop really is. Do you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, hip hop is absolutely the catalyst for change in this world. Um, and you know, it, it, you know, when hip hop was created, uh, you know, in the in the early seventies. Um, you know, it, it, it started out as sort of a party thing, uh, you know, for a lot of people in, in, in the neighborhood where they, they could, they didn't have anything to create music. So they just two turntables and, you know, eventually a microphone, but then it became something where people would speak out a bit against the ills that they see around them. They'd speak out against society, um, how they're being treated. And it became this sort of rallying music. Um, and, uh, and absolutely, if you think about a lot of dystopian, uh, you know, future worlds that we see, it's, it's all about rebellion. It's all about the, just a horrible world that they live in. And, uh, <laughs> and then and it's sort of like fighting and back against an authoritarian government. It, it, the funny thing is when you when you mention, you know, public enemy, like the reality of it is when we went to go sell this show, uh, when we sold it to Hulu, um, I had made a sizzle reel that was based, you know, that was built from, you know, a lot of these types of movies, these sort of uh, futuristic dystopian movies, of course. Um, but built into that was Fight the Power. Fight the Power was actually the song in the, the scissor reel that showed Hulu, like, that this is a revolutionary music and this is what would happen. So it's really funny. We, 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 we couldn't get to <laughs> Fight the Power because of licensing <laughs> issues and stuff. But, um, but absolutely, that, 
was the, the you know the the main sort of catalyst for this world and to show that if people are really trying to fight for something in the future, um, we just had to create a world that uh, would sort of trap them and sort of uh, control them. And, and the threat of speaking out would be one of the biggest things that they would have to face. And that's why hip hop is so threatened in this world. Ever since I heard Fight the Power, I just no respect for Elvis and John Wayne. I, I mean, I'm sure we're all on the same page with that. Um, we're talking with RT right now. He's most, my, most, of my heroes, most of my heroes do not. Most of my heroes do not appear on stamps. You know what I'm saying? One of the greatest lines ever. Um, one of the best parts of Utopia Falls is just just the production design, man. Like it's again. I'll, let me read this for those who don't know Randall's background. 160 music videos, commercial short films, 17 international music video awards. So, like, you know, you honed your chops. This is like the whole Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 hours rule. Like, you you had so much time, along with our boy Jay Nats, doing all these videos for Next Element. And so working with Drake, Snoop Dogg. By the way, Snoop Dogg, we'll get to him in a second. Sean Paul. Like, you know, and yeah. of course, major artists, not only in Canada, but internationally. So you've honed your chops. You, yeah. You're making, like, you know, 500 bucks a vid. Like, you know how to make something work uh, efficiently, under stress, under a guideline, et cetera. When I'm watching the show, though, I'm like, man, mm -hmm. these are some beautiful sets. I'm sure there's CGI as well, but just tell me about the production mm -hmm. design because I just pictured you must have been like, you know, now you're the creator, now you're the EP. It clearly, it looks like they put some money into this thing and you got to really build up your vision and I'm sure maybe there were some changes here and there. You can, you know, finances always come into things, but just tell me about the whole production design and being there and building that world. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, look, um, it was definitely a, a, a thing. I, I really wanted this world to be uh, very visual. Um, you know, we wanted it to be familiar. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, you know, we, we, we did take inspiration from the, from the hunger games, from all those kinds of things. We weren't looking to reinvent this kind of dystopian world. What we want to do is just inject that world with, with hip hop and see what happened. But along with that came our own flourishes. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of very natural lighting. Um, I think that sort of grounds people in a reality. Uh, we made the set. Uh, you know, the academy set and some of the, 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 the sector sets where the, where the characters live, all sort of fluid. So you could walk from one into the other. And again, that was just so that I could ground people in that world. You could, you could feel that you could walk from one room to another and you'd be in that place. So, uh, and then we, and then, like I said, we, we populated a lot of it with very natural light, these kinds of ideas, um, having big windows where lights just streaming in, um, was very important to me because this is also a world that is rebuilding after some, you know, the great flash is what we called it, which is the thing that sort of wiped out everything else around the, the, the world. And if they're rebuilding, they're going to be very nature conscious. So, um, you know, it, it was very much about having, uh, you know, uh, stone textures and, and wood textures um, as this populace is rebuilding, they're using the earth, they're paying respect to the earth as well. So there's this very sort of natural element. And of course, that's reflected by one of our sectors, which is nature sector. So yeah, it's a, it, was, it was a very all-encompassing thing. I worked with some great people. Um, Ian Brock is our production designer. Um, he's worked on Orphan Black and, uh, and, 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 and a lot of, lot of big shows. So, um, yeah, so we, we worked together on that, and his team did a kick-ass job on this, man. It's a great cast across the board. You know, as you said, it's, it's really targeted towards teens and, 
you know, my wife's got a cousin who's 16 and loves hip hop. I'm like, oh my God, this show's like meant for her. So seriously, anybody out there, mm-hmm. if you've been yes. a teenager, I'm like, this is totally up their alley. But I think for you, as a director and as a creator, it's so important casting. You know, obviously we love Scorsese. And, you know, I was watching Marty's series. He was talking about like, you know, 80% of the thing is casting. Like, think about that. 80% is the casting. So it's so important when you're going through, like, you've come up with this vision for the show. You've got to get all the right actors. And I thought, by and large, like, all the actors really hit. And, um, I thought Humberly Gonzalez, I texted you, I thought she was terrific. I mean, she's fantastic in the show. I'm reading about her background. I'm like, she's Venezuelan. She didn't speak English until like high school. Like, how, how did, tell me about the casting process, how you found these actors. Robin Alomar is <laughs> very good as well. I mean, this is great how you found yeah. these really good actors. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, Scorsese's the king for saying stuff like that. It really is about the cast. It really is about just casting well. You just gotta, you just gotta gather the right people, and then sort of create the space for them to play around and inhabit your world, and and, and you're good, you know. So, um, particularly with this project, you know, me being a, a creator of color, of you know, a black creator, um, I was looking to make sure that our cast was incredibly diverse and filled with with you know teens of color, and most importantly, because they just don't get to see themselves as heroes uh, very often. They're often, you know, it's, there's usually a token. Uh, that's somebody's sidekick. <laughs> you know, you got the token brown guy or the, you know, the, the token Asian girl on the side. And, you know, but um, so in this world, I wanted all of our heroes um, predominantly to be, you know, uh, young people of color. Uh, you know, our, our, our two leads are of African descent, Aaliyah and Bodie. Um, you know, like you said, Umberly is, you know, Latina, um, you know, so it was just, it was, you know, right down to the fact that, you know, we, we have, and we have storylines to serve them too. It's not just them being seen, but, you know, we have storylines that are important to these characters. Um, you know, one of our characters, Apollo is an indigenous character. I thought like, (laughs) how come I don't see any indigenous people in the future at all it's like they've been erased right so you know there's literally a storyline with his character about him starting to reconnect to his lost culture um and it was just important for us to do that you know uh uh also represent you know the lgbtq community you know one of our major major relationships is sageland they're getting a lot of buzz on social media sage in brooklyn um, you know, it's a, it's a lesbian relationship and it's, it's not even one that's questioned in our world. So I really wanted to present characters, um, that, uh, you know, represent a lot of different people that don't get to see themselves. And we just lucked out, man. The cast is top notch. Um, they all came to play, uh, and they were just amazing. I, you know, I got, I got nothing but praise for them. Yeah, Bodie like a John Boyega type. When I was watching him, I go, this guy's great. You could just plug him into Star Wars mm-hmm. right now. He's great. And, but I want to continue that so, point about diversity because I think you're right. When I'm watching it, I said, okay, he clearly cared about getting everyone represented. We got an Asian guy, we got a brown guy, we got a black guy. I'm like, all right, cool. But it, as you said, it's not just mm-hmm. for the sake of, of diversity. This is actually, like you said, dystopian future, and these are the people there. What I'm curious about, though, like <clears throat> specifically for science fiction, like, I was thinking about this. Remember Avery Brooks, your boy, who played Cisco on Star mm. Trek Deep Space Nine? Cisco, like, yeah. He was like the, a, Nine, a, yeah. right, a rare black actor in science fiction. Like, you think about 2001 or any, like Star Wars. Like, it, rare now to see any of these guys. Like, mm. it's, that's something, yeah. too, that I've always thought about. Like, you wouldn't think 
oh yeah, it, it was science fiction. Why are there no black people in this thing? But that's always been the case, right? And 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 again, you know, and and in lead roles, right? Like that's that's that you know sometimes you get you know Lando Lando's kicking around in the back of background in Star Wars, like he's he's got his ship, but you never see Lando's story, right? Like you don't you don't follow Lando, you know. So um, what was interesting here was to tell the story of these young people of color and how their, you know, their story is, is, is about bringing this culture back into this world. So it's, it's really about them and their journey to do this for this specific culture. I'm sure there's other stories going around, going on in, in, in Utopian Falls, but we're focusing <laughs> on these ones for once. Um, and that was something that I just thought would be really, really important. And, um, you know, a lot of people are responding to it. A lot of, you know, a lot of uh, black, brown and, 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 uh, and, and LGBTQ youth are, 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 are um, really excited about it. So I'm very happy about that. Utopia Falls, currently available on Hulu. Binge watch the whole thing. It's 10 episodes, 44 minutes each, seven and a half hours. You will not regret it. And if you want some big names, how about the fact Snoop Dogg is in the show? He is the voice and as soon as you hear his voice, of course, it's unmistakable that it's Snoop. You worked with him before doing a video with him. I met him a couple of years ago, yep. ESPN Celebrity Softball, quick interview with him, and I did name drop you. And of course, he knew who you were. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. But although I feel like you could say any name to Snoop. He'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But tell me about the experience of working with Snoop. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, look, uh, there was when it came time to find the voice, essentially of our living library you know it's essentially this this ai that um starts to uh you know educate um you know the the kids as to like the history of the world and, and the music and stuff like that we just we wanted something that was beyond the normal normally it's, it's sort of like you know a, a very polite sounding female voice generic female voice for these ais you know what i mean um, and, uh, we were like, well, how can we do something different here? Um, and of course it just made sense, you know, to, to Snoop has one of the most iconic voices. Number one, he is, he is now a global icon. He is beyond just a rapper. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's elevated into that status of, you know, the Madonnas and the, and the, and the princes of the world, you know, in, in a way that he's just, you know, people all over the world just know him. Um, so, you know, we were like, well, let's just, let's just try to reach out. And, uh, and, uh, you know, once, once we sort of explained the importance of, of this character and how they're going to be instrumental into reintroducing hip hop to the future, uh, he just jumped on. Um, he was, he was great. Uh, you know, did a lot of his stuff in sort of one, one or two sessions really quick. Um, and we're just blessed to have him, man. It was, it was, uh, and a, as you can see in the thing, you know, he provides some much needed humor and, and, and fun to the, to the show. It's great. How high was he when he was doing his lines? <laughs> I mean, I don't really know that Snoop is not ever, if he's, if, if he's ever not high, you know what I'm saying? So I, I can't really call it. I mean, I, I could tell you a story about, I went to I went to do a video with him in Amsterdam, and uh, and uh, after after the the the, uh, the shoot, um, he had a little concert thing, and we went to the concert. And I, you know, I have never ever seen as much weed in my life <laughs> that I did at that concert. It was unbelievable the amount that was floating around. So. 
I don't know if he's ever not high. I mean, it probably took me a year after that to to be sober myself. So, uh, <laughs> but it was there. Oh, that's great. I, I'm always curious too, you know, like you said, we all know this, that, you know, movie making and filmmaking and whatever you're doing creatively, you're working with friends. And listen, Emperor Absolutely. Watts, who's with Havji knocking it out of the park? What was it like? Because yeah. my wife, Eamon's, Eamon's watching the show with me and she's like, like, this is hilarious. Like, imagine if Randall was directing you. And I said, yeah. I said, well, hopefully, you know, the sports catcher shows up on season two, Utopia Falls, I'll get the part off. That'd be great. And she says, and she goes, but wouldn't that be awkward? And I said, well, no, like if it's your friends, like, I mean, everyone's a professional. I mean, you're there to get the job done. And especially when it's your friend, you don't want to let your friend down. So I'm sure who's came in like he was yeah. dialed up more than anything. I'm like, and, and I'm sure whatever direction you're giving him, it's easier to work with friends because you know exactly what you're saying, right? It's like Marty and Bob, they're speaking shorthand because they know each other so well. So I'm sure for you, you've been working, I feel like with a lot of the same people, both in front of the camera, behind the camera for so long. It's like, it's like you're speaking a second language now, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, and you see it, obviously, you know, filmmaking is the most collaborative part. So that's just number one. Um, you, you, you know, you're pulling in all different types of artists to work with you. They have to do their thing. You have to guide them as the director. Um, but of course, you want to work with people that you that you like. <laughs> um, you know, you, you guys, you guys doing this cinephile uh, thing you know you guys i, I i've got to believe that you you got to be good friends you know um and you want to surround yourself with people that you love and respect and and that you can have fun with i mean the best stuff comes out of that so um without a doubt you know uh, you know my cinematographer is a, is a longtime friend and, and people that i did you know uh, sammy and i that i did uh, music videos with and then, of course, you know, bringing in somebody like Hootsman Havji, I mean, that's my guy. That's, you know, that's, that's our guy. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and Hoots just knocked it out the park, man. You know, the funny thing is, is you know, Hoots is not normally a very seriously serious and strict uh, disciplinarian. You know, I, we never <laughs> see him like that. He's really goofy and right. funny and charming, but, you know, we never see this side for him. So, it was actually really interesting for, for, for us to create this role for him. And, um, and, and he came in and he just killed it. Like, you know, it was even beyond me. Like I know him and I'm, I, I'm obviously pushing him, you know, uh, on Hulu for, for, for this role, but it came back. They were like, that's the guy, you know, <laughs> of the two people that we put forth, you know, once you whittle it all down, they were like, no, nah, it's him. And I'm like, of course it's him. <laughs> you know, so it was amazing uh, working with Hoots, of course, man. Uh, just, uh, you know, it's a dream come true when you get to work with your friends, like long time, long time friends. So it was great. Well, that's why I gave a fist pump when I saw Ari Pollock, and I would have put money at some point. Cabby was going to show up in the show. That, that's my only surprise. <laughs> I thought we'd find a way. Richards, Richards was going to show up, I figured, late in the series at some point for a cameo. <laughs> I'll tell you, I mean, look. We're doing. Look, if if uh, if we're if we're blessed enough to get a second season, you know, we're laying seeds here. You know what I mean? Uh, if, if 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 you're looking for messages, if you're looking for things in the series, you'll see it. And uh, you know, like so, for instance, you know, one of our characters, uh, you know, Apollo, he starts. You know, spoiler alert, but he starts using the turntables that he got from the archives, and he starts to to play music out over radios. And that's sort of like the idea of the birth of, of underground radio in this world. You know what I mean? So I got to say, you know, who knows, man, next season, 
there could be some sports happening, underground sports happening, and then we might need some people to comment on it. I might have to give you a call or cabby as well. That would be hysterical. This is this is RT's passion project, and he just convinces Hulu just to get all of his boys some work and put him in the show. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little movies before I let you go. Just I mean, listen, sure. for those that don't know, Randall used to have epic Oscar parties. This year, I was stunned when you told me you did not hold an Oscar party, although Ari, I believe, still was in the building. But, you know, you Randall was yeah. great with Oscar parties. For all those listening, you know, everyone does these Oscar parties. They're the worst because what happens is everybody goes there. They're not in the movies. They're all yammering about their lives. Nobody cares. Everyone's eating food. And Randall was like, listen, if you come to my place for the party where we are diehard movie geeks, <laughs> we are into this. I, of course, I want you to socialize, have a good time, drink, smoke, whatever you're going to do. But that's in the commercial breaks. You can talk as much as you want. When the show's on, we're watching the show. All right, we and you can react like, "Hey, best editor!" Oh no, no. okay, fine, fine. But he want to hear the speeches, so I, I I always loved and appreciated the fact that you had the same uh, mindset that I did, which is like, I actually want to watch the Oscars. I actually care about every goofy category and sound mixing and all the rest of it because we have the Oscar ballots. In terms of the ballot, I went twenty one to twenty four this year, which I feel like if you had a party, I would have done pretty well. Wow. But I should get I should get crushed because I missed on on three of them. One, sound mixing, sound editing, as you know, they normally go hand in hand. I. Thought thought they'd both be mm-hmm. 1917 one of them was Ford versus ferrari but randall yeah. i missed on the two biggest which is director and picture now i'm thrilled that i was wrong i thought like most people it would be mendez and 1917 and listen i'm thrilled that deacons won because i was like dude just just retire all cinematography awards give it to deacons yes. every time yes but but what was your reaction i'm sure you were as, as pumped who was watching it with me i'm sure you were as pumped as i was when parasite when bong joon ho won specifically i'm like oh my god nobody had that happening and then his speech was so endearing and so classy and then of course it wins best picture yes. your reaction to parasite I mean, without a doubt, it was my favorite film uh, last year. I saw it here at the Toronto Film Festival. Um, you know, we went to the premiere, and um, uh, you know, I'm already a, a fan of, of uh, foreign cinema, Korean cinema in general as well. Uh, I love so, and 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 um, you know, it floored me when I saw it. You know, it floored me. Uh, it was one of those films that you you end up talking about, uh, which are the best types of films. You end up talking about it with your friends for an hour, hour and a half afterwards. The next day, you're still thinking about it. So, um, and that to me is the film that should win Best Picture. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's cool for films to be popular. It's cool for films to be, um, you know, impactful. But if it's something that's staying in your brain for several days and you can't, you know, you're claiming it, like you're telling people you got to see it, and it's it's as though you made it. Um, it's the film that should win. And uh, I couldn't have been happier for Bong Joon-ho. It, it was incredible that they won the first ever foreign um, uh, picture, uh, you know, nominee to win Best Picture. Um, you know, th- his directing was incredible. And then if you go and you look, if you want to dig a little deeper, you go and you look and you find out about the production design, the entire movie was shot on a, on a soundstage. It's incredible. Like, you know, you, you think that they, they found this house out in the hills. They shot it in this house. You think that they maybe went down and found something, you know, in, in a certain neighborhood. That was all on a soundstage. It's, it's the, 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 the craft that this man has um, is impeccable and uh, well-deserved, absolutely should have won and did. 
for for once in uh, <laughs> in Academy history. It was amazing. I know it's rare. Right? We we used to be, get used to complaining every year and saying, "Oh my God, that sucks. That shouldn't have won. That's a joke." Right? Just a year ago, yeah. everyone's complaining about Green Book, and now you're like, "No, no, this was legitimately the right decision for picture and director, and you know maybe some quibbles with some other awards." But you're right; it's rare when you actually agree with them. I want you to defend the Irishman because I get tired of being the only one doing it for all those morons out there who said it was too long or too slow. Your text to me, which I'm reading, this was December 2nd. It was great. Perfect full circle end to Scorsese gangster epics. Goodfellas, Casino, The Irishman. They're all going to get nomination and it might win Best Picture. This was you in early December. So I know you loved it as much as I did. Uh, Just just a retort to all those who are too stupid to appreciate its greatness. All I got to say about it is, like I said, it was it was a it was a perfect full circle uh, moment to his to his uh, gangster epics, you know the the idea that you know uh, Goodfellas is sort of the young man's gangster epic. It's all it's all balls and and, and <laughs> you know and 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 just energy and just like you know not not given not given a shit. You know what I mean? And then uh, you know Casino being sort of the 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 middle aged gangster movie. You know what I mean? You got it all. You got you 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 get the wife. But if you don't manage this thing well, it's just going to it's not going to work out well for you. It's going to fall apart. And then this one being the sort of the end of your life gangster movie, which really just shows, you know, if, if, if you've been living this kind of a lifestyle and you haven't been paying attention to what's really important, your family and whatnot, you're going to end up all alone. And it's, it's actually going to be really sad. So I, I thought it was a really poignant sort of uh, end to this idea of the gangster um, uh, narrative, and um, I, I I loved it, man. I thought it was great. Um, it's it, I think it's definitely something that you want to see in a theater. Uh, I think sometimes when you know people are trying to put uh, three three forty five uh, at home on Netflix, it's it's a it's a tougher thing. But I saw it in the theater, uh, and and I just loved it. I thought it was great. Couldn't agree more, man. The theatrical experience, particularly, because I yeah. think you're right. If you watch ten minutes and turn it off, twenty minutes again, no, you can't get in the flow you of a movie, any movie like that. But particularly The Irishman, it was impossible to do. Last point before I let you go, I know you got to bounce. Directed by RT.com, you can always find out more information what's happening with Randall. I'm just curious in the credits. It goes by RT Thorne. So music videos it used to be RT exclamation point. Yes, sir. Now in the credits, RT Thorne. That's like saying MS Scorsese or like <laughs> CN Nolan. <laughs> why, why is it not just RT? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the, 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 the real quick answer is just that IMDb wouldn't let me just be two initials. Um, so, I, you know, I had, to put a, I had to put a last name there, and I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to pay respect to, to you know, my, my grandmother and my lineage, uh, my Barbados lineage of Thorne. So, but you know, everybody calls me RT. So it was just mashing the two things together to, and look, you know, this is me now moving into, uh, you know, I've been doing it for a little while now, I guess in television, but, um, you know, officially sort of like creating this show, uh, executive producing, um, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously it's another stage in my career. And, uh, instead of keeping it all hip hop, you you got your hip hop name when you're doing hip hop. And then when you're doing uh, when you're doing your executive thing and your director thing, then then you do it like this way. So I love it, man. Last one here, I, I promise. On on a serious note, you are advocating for opportunities for inner city youth 
in communities similar to the neighborhoods in which you came up. Tell us all about the Remix Project, Team 7 Productions, Temple Street Productions, creating the City Life Film Project, which is an educational initiative exposing inner city filmmakers to industry level training and access, because this is clearly something which is very important to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I will say that that now uh, City Life Film, unfortunately, has, uh, you know, fallen by the wayside in terms of because of funding, we weren't able to uh, to continue the program. Um, but that said, you know, I worked very much with the uh, uh, Remix Project in the beginning of my career. Uh, I was on their board of directors, which is, you know, that's, that, that's uh, sort of a, they're in what we call a cultural um, incubator. And essentially what it is is they, they sort of outreach to at-risk youth um, in the community and they engage them through the creative arts. So they engage them through music uh, production, photography, filmmaking, and City Life was an extension of that. Um, it's, it's a vital thing. Uh, I, I, I feel that is very important to, my, to myself. And like, for instance, um, what we're doing with Utopia Falls right now um, for the next few months uh, is that we are holding a, 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 whole, a, a whole group of seminars um, with different community groups to engage, you know, at-risk youth uh, of color um, that can come in and they can kind of like ask us and get the information about how we made this show, uh, how it was created, trying to empower the next generation um, uh, of creatives of color. Because, you know, the industry, uh, unfortunately, is still uh, very sort of restricted um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't really allow for creatives of color in there that much. So we really want to disseminate this information and let people know how they can get involved in the television and film production industries. And that's sort of my goal over the next few months, specifically with Utopia Falls as sort of a case study for it. So. I love it, man. Once again, check it. Utopia Falls, an original science fiction series. It's on Hulu right now. You can binge watch it like I did. RT is the series creator, executive producer, director, and co-writer. Uh, you can also follow him on Twitter, at Directed by RT, as he recently tweeted but an hour ago. It's also available on Instagram. Uh, about your night at TIFF. I mean, mm -hmm. it's amazing. The fact that you're being celebrated by all those around you. I mean, Directors Guild, the Canada nomination, and the fact that, you know, obviously the, the film festival, which we used to pay, I was telling somebody, in 96, I think tickets used to be like 12 bucks, right? Because movie yeah, tickets man. were eight bucks. I think we were paying 12 or 13 lining up. Yeah. Now I don't even know how much it costs, but, but, it's, but it's worth it because, you know, for someone like you and me, who we appreciate world cinema and always, you know, book off those two weeks in, in mm -hmm. September in Toronto to be able to go. The fact that you're being honored by them, man, I'm just so proud of you and I'm thrilled for you and I love you and uh, congrats thank on it all man you're the best thank you very much brother I really appreciate it and thanks for talking with me about it bro Mount Rushmore. Now time for the Mount Rushmore TV comedy series. Once again, thanks to my man, RT. As we go through all these shows, I could tell you Randall's favorite shows when we were back at Ryerson from 96 to 2000. Let me tell you something. That guy loved Frasier. 
Um, these are some of the Mount Rushmore comedy series. <laughs> uh, let me tell you something. The, the, what show is not going to make it? Pushing Daisies is not going to make my list. I mean, Rick and Morty is not going to make my list. But think about the history of comedy in this country and think of all those great shows, okay? Think of Nostalgia, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, okay? Think of uh, Honeymooners, The Jeffersons, for God's sakes, The Mary Tyler Moore Show. There's been two offices. You want to go Three Stooges? It's an impossible list, but somehow me and Joe are going to get this done. I already feel like Joe's going to have Veep in his list. By the way, my brother always listens to this one segment every week. He already had predicted my four shows for HBO. So let's see if I can be unpredictable for a change. Larry Sanders' show, that's a predictable one for me, of course. I love Gary Shandling. I've already said it's my favorite comedy show of all time, which I said a week ago. So, yep, Gary Shandling is in Larry Sanders' show specifically. That is, of course, in. Arrested Development, I'm going to put in, although I wish I could have an asterisk, because... You know, the later seasons are not as strong as the first few seasons, but the first season of Arrested Development to me is like laugh until your sides hurt funny. Like, I think it's the smartest comedy ever. And I think all elements of comedy. I think there's there's double entendres. I think there's wordplay. I think it's sight gags. I think it's slapstick. I like everything. It's intelligent. It's goofy. It's highbrow. It's lowbrow. The first season of Arrested Development, as good as it gets. And then seasons two and three were still really good. Season four, obviously a disappointment, the one that was on Netflix. And then the season five was on Netflix most recently. I think it was like a year ago. It was all right. I mean, it definitely had some good moments. It was better than season four. But if you could just, you know, chop it down, I would. But what the hell? I'm putting Arrested Development in there. Those never nudes are making the list. Shout out to the Bluth family. Now we're at two. Now I'm going to get to nostalgia. Joe is younger than me, so he can't speak to Night Court, but anybody who's, you know, 35 to 40 at least will definitely know how great a show Night Court is. John Larroquette, four times when Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series, the late Harry Anderson playing a judge. I mean, you've got uh, just such an eclectic cast here. I mean, just think about Roz and Bull, and Richard Mall, uh, Marky Post as Christine. Night Court is in, which means I've got one slot left. So Arrested Development, Larry Sanders Show, Night Court. I'd love to get extras in because I'm telling you, so many people think of Ricky Gervais in the office, but extras is incredible. Like the, the, there's one with Kate Winslet, so funny. Patrick Stewart's amazing on the show, but I'll be predictable. I'll go with Seinfeld. We thought about Kirby Enthusiasm at four, but I will go with Seinfeld because I do remember when I was you know, 16 in high school, I was just obsessed with Seinfeld. I had VHS tapes of it. I, I don't rewatch them as much as others do. I've obviously just got too many other things to do. But if I can sit down and watch the contest, I'm definitely going to laugh. And I can appreciate how smart Jerry and Larry were together. Uh, obviously, the cast. I mean, I love Costanza. Kramer, obviously, Michael Richards is so good. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Just, it feels like such a small footnote how great her career has been because of Veep and you know the new adventures of old Christine, all that kind of stuff. So that's my Mount Rushmore TV comedies of all time. Arrested Development, Larry Sanders Show, Night Court, and Seinfeld. So missing the cut is Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, Taxi, we all love Danny DeVito. He's unbelievable. News Radio, I'd love to get a shout-out for, just for Phil Hartman, amazing. But that's my list, Joe. I'm sticking to it. Go ahead and advocate for Martin or MASH. I mean, I'll always advocate for Martin. Not a, not a monster. Yeah, I would throw that. I'll throw that on my uh, honorable mentions list. But I can't agree with you more or add to what you said about Arrested Development. I have to throw that on my list for all the reasons you said... Also, I'm, I'll take Seinfeld from you as well and throw that on my list just beca- because of its influence over the years. This this is really tough, and I'm going to have to go with The Simpsons as my third pick. I don't think they're very funny now, and I wish that they stopped after like season 15, but those first 15 seasons, I've probably seen every episode 40 times. You know what I mean? So I'll throw The Simpsons on, and then... Just because of its influence on television afterwards, I'll put on I Love Lucy. 
Um, first, he used the multi-camera format, be in front of an audience, featured a Hispanic person in a lead role in the 50s. I will throw I Love Lucy on there. So I have The Simpsons, Seinfeld, Arrested Development, and I Love Lucy. I love it, man. I love Lucy making like Lucille Ball, the scene where she's like stuffing the chocolates in her mouth on the conveyor belt. That's going to be like one of the most famous scenes, I feel like, in TV comedy history. Like the, the depth of her physicality was amazing. Like, I, I love Lucy. I remember, like, you know, I remember, like, in high, not even high school, so I would say, like, you know, grade seven, eight, something like that. Like, you know, teacher roles in the old TV. Hey, I want to show you guys some old shows. Like, the honeymooners now, I think, would probably be very out of date. But, you know, to the moon, Alice, paying whatever. I leave it to Beaver. I remember being very square, but I remember laughing at I Love Lucy. I'm like, no, Lucille Ball is like legitimately very funny and would still be very funny today, right? 100%. And it's also just been used in pop culture so much, whether it's like another TV show parodying, you know, that conveyor belt scene or whatever it is. Like it still has influence over, over writers today, which I think there's something to be said for that for sure. Well said. If you're a fan of Scrubs or Sex in the City, go ahead and tweet us your complaint, and uh, <laughs> we'll take the t- <laughs> as we will. Cinephile Pod, as always, you can tweet us or individually add in S. Ferk. Total Recall. Now it's time for the films from 1992. Total Recall, the 1993 Oscars. You'll remember it well because it was the year that Unforgiven dominated. Was that the right choice? Let's get into it now. Go ahead, Joe. The nominees for Best Picture. Unforgiven, The Crying Game, A Few Good Men, Howard's End, Scent of a Woman. Man, Scent of a Woman's the worst of the five. And of course, I adore Pacino, but it's, uh, you know, it's definitely got some schmaltzy moments in there. It's too long. It's like 237. And the last scene is just Pacino grandstanding. It's very entertaining. And I, you know, I enjoyed it as a guilty pleasure, but it's the worst of the five, probably. I've never seen Howard Zen, but I'm sure it's good. Ismail Merchant, of course, longtime producer, you know, costume drama, et cetera. Few good men. I mean, listen, there's some unforgettable courtroom scenes. As much as I have disdain for Tom Cruise, there's no question it's unforgettable. Him and Nicholson trading fireworks. A very early Aaron Sorkin script. It's between The Crying Game and Unforgiven for me. Listen, in terms of unpredictability, The Crying Game is one of the all-time heavyweight champions. So I think what I'm going to do is this. I will give Unforgiven best picture because it is an incredible film about, you know, a gunslinger facing his past and the, the toll that violence can take. And it's it really is one of the great Westerns of all time. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give Crying Game an award a little bit later on. So I would like to I would like to give it to the Crying Game because of audacity and unpredictability. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it because you do not see that twist coming. But I will give Best Picture. I think the Academy got it right by giving it to Unforgiven. I agree with you. I think Unforgiven does is worthy of Best Picture here for sure. And your to your point, it's one of the classic westerns now. So definitely Unforgiven. Yeah, it's a good point you make because at the time you go, well, is it going to be as great as you know, Red River, Rio Bravo, or whatever. But now, with the benefit of hindsight, like it's been 25 years, I'm like, no. Like, if you ask somebody who are the best questions of all time, it will absolutely be on that Mount Rushmore of list. So time does help in this case, uh, vindicating the decision to give it to Unforgiven. Best director? Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven. Neil Jordan for The Crying Game. James Ivory for Howard's End. Robert Altman for The Player. And Martin Brest for Scent of a Woman. So here's what I'll do. Rather than giving Crying Game Best Picture, I'll give Neil Jordan Best Director because I do think The Crying Game is an incredible film and he's, he's balancing lots of different storylines there. Like it's kind of a, 
I mean, it's about the IRA. It's tense. It's, uh, you know, like a thriller, but then there's romance as well. So he is mixing different genres as well. And I do think it's well directed. So I'm going to give it to, to Neil Jordan for The Crying Game. I know that takes away the Oscar from Clint, but I'm giving him best picture. So I will give The Crying Game best director. Uh, Robert Altman, I mean, listen, the guy's a legend, obviously, but his films aren't really to my taste personally. I never got through McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I've never seen MASH, but I do think The Player is very funny. I'm glad that it was nominated for Best Director because I remember it lost out for Best Picture. Marty Brest, I mean, again, brutal. Sent the moment, I don't think he should have been nominated for Best Director. Never seen Howard's End. So Altman, I like the pick if you're going to go, obviously, by Legacy, but I will disagree with the Academy. I would have given it to Neil Jordan. All right. Yeah, I've also never seen Howard's End. I can't speak to that, but I'm going to give it to Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven. All right. Best Actor. Al Pacino, Scent of a Woman, Robert Downey Jr. for Chaplin, Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven, Stephen Ray for The Crying Game, and Denzel Washington for Malcolm X. So I remember being appalled at the time. I was, I was uh, 14 years old, and I didn't know about the greatness of Al Pacino. It was before he became my favorite actor. You know, I first saw Carlito's Way the next year. I'm like, oh, this guy's awesome. And then I went back and watched the Godfathers and Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and Injustice for All, like literally every Pacino movie I could find, I watched them all. But when I was 14 and the nominations came out, I said, are you kidding me? Denzel Washington, Malcolm X, is one of the greatest performances in screen history. And I said, I know he won for glory for supporting actor, but Malcolm X is one of my favorite movies of all time. Sent to Woman is not even in the top 100 of all time. Like, this is a joke. Like, I get the fact Pacino's playing this blind colonel, and in many ways... It's an underrated performance. Follow me on this one. He wins an Oscar, so the movie becomes overrated. But if you actually watch it now, you appreciate how good Pacino's performance is. So it's actually become underrated because a lot of like movie purists, i.e. snobs, will dismiss Sentimental and say, well, it's not Pacino's best. And obviously, he's much better in you know, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, yeah, I got that. But this is the problem. He wins for the one he shouldn't have won for. So at this point, he was one for eight. It was like Brad Pitt winning for Once Upon a Time. He was long overdue. Let's get Alan Oscar. But there's no question. If you watched all five movies and all five of those performances, and by the way, Ray is very uh, subtle in The Crying Game as Fergus. Clint is very stoic and yet shows the, the deep reservoirs. And the fact that he's nice, the prostitute, he's been knifed. Some of the best acting of Eastwood's career. Danny Jr. and Chaplin. I mean, just the physicality of that. The guy's playing Charlie Chaplin. You know how hard that is? But it should have been Denzel. No doubt about it. Hard agree. Should have been Denzel Washington. And to your point, like if we were to do a Mount Rushmore of Denzel movies, Malcolm X would have to be on there just for that performance. It's synonymous, I think, with his career and his name as a whole. So it has to be Denzel Washington for Malcolm X. Yeah, when he got the Lifetime Achievement Award AFI, I think it was last year. Like when you're watching all those clips, I mean, that's just one barometer of success. But like over and over, you kept seeing clips of Malcolm X. I'm like, well, yeah, like that's maybe his best movie. The guy's unbelievable in that movie. The fact he didn't win an Oscar is a crime for Denzel. All right, best actress nominees. We have Emma Thompson for Howard's End, Catherine Deneuve for Indochine, Mary McDowell for Passion Fish, Michelle Pfeiffer for Love Field, and Susan Sarandon for Lorenzo's Oil. I remember Siskel and Ebert just crushing Love Field. I've never seen it, but they said, like, I remember Siskel was like, this, this movie's brutal. Michelle Pfeiffer's a great actress. There's no reason she should have been nominated for this movie. Apparently, it's just a bad movie. I have no interest in ever seeing Love Field, but that sticks out in my memory right away. Mary McDonald is in a wheelchair playing May Alice Colhane in Passion Fish, and she was really good. I know Emma Thompson won for Howard's End, and she's a great actress, also won an Oscar for the script of Sense and Sensibility, which Joe taught me recently here on Total Recall. But I would have gone with Susan Sarandon for Lorenzo's Oil, playing Michaela, 
Uh, her and Nick Nolte, listen, Nolte's one of my favorite actors, but the accent was not good. But Susan Sarandon was excellent, Lorenzo Zoyle. I would have given it to her for Best Actress. I like Susan Sarandon a lot. I'm a big fan of hers. I would give it to her as well, but to your point of Love Field, uh, I called it Indifferent Field after I saw it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so you've seen it, Joe. Yeah, it was okay. I saw it a while ago, but it... I, I didn't think that it was anything like mem- memorable. I don't know how strong the field outside of these actors were for that year. Maybe that contributed to it. But yeah, it didn't seem, to your point, something that would get a big nomination. Fair enough. Best Supporting Actor. We have Gene Hackman for Unforgiven, Jay Davidson for The Crying Game, Jack Nicholson for A Few Good Men, Al Pacino, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and David Paymer for Mr. Saturday Night. Oh my, what a category. I mean, every single one of these guys could have won it. Jay Davidson, <laughs> unforgettable for many reasons as Dill. Nicholson, one of his most iconic performances as Colonel Nathan Jessup. Pacino is in, outstanding in Glengarry Glen Ross. In many ways, I mean, he is the, he's the face of the movie as Ricky Roma, the fast-talking salesman who is completely unscrupulous. And David Paymer, Mr. Saturday Night, and Cabral Richards and I love it. Listen, Billy Crystal, Passion Project. I mean... Billy was, was so upset he wanted to win everything, and it, it got completely stunned by the Oscars, except for Paymer, who is amazing in the movie. Plays the long-suffering brother, who's Billy Crystal's, you know, he's the, he's the one guy that listens to all the abuse and all the ridicule. He's amazing in the movie. It's a very tender performance. Honestly, I can't pick one of these. They're all five are amazing. I mean, I'll give it to Hackman just because he won, and he's a great actor, and he was just such a great villain. He was so sadistic playing little Bill Daggett. But I'm telling you right now, Joe, any one of these five performances, if they'd won, I would have been okay with all five you can make a case for. It's very rare that I feel that way, but all these five are amazing. Wow. All right. Well, I was going to go with Jack Nicholson for a few good men, but now I'm going to go David Paymer. You, nice. you, just, you just flipped me on it. I want to give him some love. No, I'm telling you right now, people have not seen Mr. Saturday Night. Go watch it. And I'm telling you right now, Crystal made that movie like as a vanity project. Like It's, it's the favorite movie of his career. I asked Billy Crystal. I met him at ESPN briefly. Wasn't the nicest. And I just said to him, hey, I love Mr. Saturday Night. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite. I'm like, no, I know. I'm, that's why I'm mentioning it to you. I know it's your favorite movie of your own work. And uh, what I wanted to say to him was, <laughs> what does it feel like? <laughs> Put your heart and soul into this movie. And David Paper was the best part of the movie. But I did not say that to Billy Crystal. Uh, I did also ask him why the hell he's wearing a Mets hat in City Slickers. Maybe that's a pissed him off. Then he rolled his eyes and got annoyed. But I don't understand. <laughs> but I'm like, I understand. You're a diehard Yankee fan. You made 61. Everyone knows you're a huge Yankee fan. The reason is the Mets apparently gave him a bunch of money. Uh, to his charitable organization. I don't know if it was the one, obviously him and Robin and, and Whoopi would always do stuff for the homeless. I don't know if it was that one specifically, but he was like, the Mets give me a bunch of money so I wore a Mets hat. I'm like, that still makes no sense to me. Like, I, I, I never understood. This guy's a diehard Yankee fan. Why are you wearing a Mets hat? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's my, uh, my rant there. Supporting actors. We have Marissa Tomei from My Cousin Vinny, Judy Davis, Husbands and Wives, Joan Plowright for Enchanted April, Vanessa Redgrave for Howard's End, Miranda Richardson for Damage. Well, Marissa Tomei got a lot of heat. Everyone kept saying that Jack Bounds read the wrong name, like he's just some senile man, and he can't read this properly. Um, Miranda Richardson probably should have won for Damage. I mean, that's a disturbing movie. Her and uh, Jeremy Irons in that movie, and I remember she's got like a handful of scenes that really just blow you away. I've never seen Howard's End, nor have I seen Enchanted April. Husbands and Wives, Woody Allen movie. Yep, Judy Davis is pretty good. Judy Davis had that run like in the early 90s. Pretty good actress. Sally Wainwright. But what the hell? Because the Academy killed her so much, and I love Marissa Tomei because she's wonderful in The Wrestler. Um, and I just think in general, she's a really good actress. She's great in uh, all the Lumet movie, uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. 
So what the hell? My cousin Vinny. Comedies never get rewarded, Joe. I'm glad she won Best Supporting Actress. She should have. I agree with you uh, for the exact same point. Marissa Tomei, just because it's a comedy, they're never recognized at the Oscars, so definitely have to go with My Cousin Vinny. All right, best written, best screenplay written directly for the screen. So best original screenplay. Good nominees here. The Crying Game, Neil Jordan, Husbands and Wives, Woody Allen, Lorenzo Zoyle, George Miller, and Nick Enright, Passion Fish, John Sayles, and Unforgiven, David Webb Peoples. That can't be the same George Miller. Are you telling me George Miller, who did Mad Max Fury Road, co-wrote Lorenzo Zoyle? Look that up, Joe, on the fly while I go through this list. Because that, that's, if that's true, my head just got blown up. Uh, oh, if I, it's not the good. same, right? It's the same, yep. Oh, my God. So George it is the same. Think about this. George Miller has done Mad Max. The guy also wrote Lorenzo's Oil, and he also did Babe, one of your favorite movies. God, is George Miller the most underrated guy in Hollywood? This guy's unbelievable. Wow. Oh, man. I would love to see a movie of all those three combined into one. <laughs> the ultimate now. mashup. This is the George Miller Film Festival. Lorenzo's Oil, Babe, and Mad Max all in one. Um, if I had a ballot, I'd go Lorenzo's Oil fifth. Although, like I said, I would have given Saran an Oscar, so it's not like it's a slouch. But I'll put it fifth. Maybe I'll put Woody Allen fifth. Husbands and Wives fourth. Lorenzo's Oil third. Unforgiven. David Webb Peoples, who's got a handful of beautiful lines in that movie. You know, uh, when he says they didn't deserve it, and the line "deserves" got nothing to do with it, which is one of the beauties. Such a good move, such a good line. And just even I love the narration at the start of the movie. John Sayles, one of my favorite screenwriters. I wish he won an Oscar for Eight Men Out or Lone Star. I'm happy he got nominated for Passion Fish, but I do think the winner, absolutely, Neil Jordan for The Crying Game. In many ways, felt like Parasite in the fact it was so unpredictable and so unexpected. Nobody knew what to, what you were getting with this movie. And Neil Jordan knocked it out of the park. Absolutely deserved the Oscar for Best Screenplay. And as I said in my representation, I would have given him Best Director as well. But I do love John Sayles. I want to disagree with you, but I can't. You're completely right. It has to be The Crying Game and The Academy got it right this year. All right. Last one, Adapted Screenplay. Howard's End, Enchanted April, The Player, A River Runs Through It, and Scent of a Woman. You know, I'm, I'm going to go with the player, actually, because that's a very acidic uh, script. And it definitely takes a lot of good shots at Hollywood. Michael Tolkien based on his novel. I might go with the player. Again, I never saw Howard's End, so I feel bad diminishing it, which was the end up win, being the winner. But I'll go with the player. And Scent of a Woman, again, Bo Goldman, he does got some good lines. It's based on a previous uh, Italian film, if I'm not mistaken, and a novel as well. He does have, I mean, the fact he writes those lines where Pacino is just barking at orders and stuff, and just the militaristic approach of it, the self-loathing of the character. I mean, in some ways, like I said, it's actually underrated. It's a good script by Bo Goldman, but I will give it to the player. And then I grew up fishing. I love fishing. Love fly fishing. I'm going with the river runs through it for sure. All right. I can appreciate that. If you're a big fishing guy, I totally get that. And, uh... I mean, what Redford did with that movie. You're right. I've never forgotten about fly fishing. I think about it all the time. Thanks so much to my man, RT. Go check out his show, Utopia Falls. It's available on Hulu. Binge watch that sucker. We'll be back next week with Al Pacino's new show on Amazon Prime. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. 
See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.